Hello, live streamers. Today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online has you covered the season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online is where the game starts. And now, let's start up Locked On MLB. You are Locked On MLB. Daily MLB Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Locked On MLB, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. This is the daily podcast where we talk about all the Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Check out there. It's the lower third. You can call me Sully. I am an Emmy-nominated television producer who's also been an actor, a comedian. I've been a baseball writer, a filmmaker, and I've been a baseball podcaster for the last decade or so. And we are now finishing up my fourth full season as a member of the Locked On Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. Thanks so much for making it your first listen, as we're available on all your free podcasting catchers and here on YouTube, uh, sometimes on live stream like I'm doing right now. And you can follow us at Lockdown MLB Pods on Twitter. Same handle for Instagram. I'm your pal Sully. I'm at Sully Baseball on Twitter. Sully Baseball Podcast on Instagram. Well, when most people mention a year for when they talk about baseball, most of the time they talk about the postseason. It's the moment that defines a season. It's strange that way. There's a strange contradiction there. When you say, like, you know, 86, you think of the World Series or maybe one of the great playoff series. You think, you know, some of what 2001 in baseball obviously had the Diamondbacks and Yankees series. 04 is the Red Sox championship. 16 has the Cleveland Chicago World Series. And you're going back, you know, you know, through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, all the years, 75, 77, all these great World Series where people, in terms of that, that becomes the identity of baseball. And in some ways, it's kind of like the Rocky movies. It's like when you talk about, you know, he fought Apollo in that one. He fought Clever Lang in that one. He fought the Russian. But there's a buildup to the ending. The following a baseball season is a commitment. And in so many ways, it's not about whether your team won or lost. It's great when they do, but great when they win, that is. But it's about that companion. It's what you have during the summer. It's that thing you do during the summer. And you get to know the players, and sometimes you get to be frustrated by the players, sometimes you get to be thrilled by the players. But it's that relationship going through that year that makes the – dessert of getting into the postseason all the more delicious because when a team wins and it's filled with players you've grown attached to and have an emotion towards it's a glorious feeling but in so many ways if your team loses and you've invested a year of following them that's also in an odd way rewarding when they lose it's not just a bunch of strangers lose it 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 hurts but that hurt means you're committing to something, that you care about something. And sometimes it's good to know that you care. And you get to know these players 
They get to be your friends. They're the people you turn to. It's one of the reasons why baseball is so glorious that during the regular season, you could have a great day. You could have a bad day. You could have a boring day. You could have an overwhelming day. And at some point, you say, I'm just going to turn on the ball game. Chances are one is on. Chances are your team is playing that day. And that could be comfort food. I used to see that with my dad, especially towards the end of his life. And there was the times he just wanted to have the ball game on. Didn't matter if the Giants won or not. He wanted to just have it on and watch it. It's there. It's a friend. It's a companion. And today that friendship goes away for a lot of teams, a lot of fan bases. You know, and in some ways there's also moments where you say goodbye to people. Dennis Eckersley, who was on the earliest Red Sox teams that I remember, has been an announcer for the last bunch of years, and he's retiring. And the announcer is part of that friendship. It goes beyond just the players. You get to know the announcers, and they get to describe what's happening. But they're also the people, as Vince Scully said, pull up a chair. That's your friend that you're watching the game with. Not every time someone leaves it becomes emotional, it's necessarily about a Hall of Famer. Now, we're going to lose Albert Pujols after this year. We're going to get at least two more games with Albert Pujols as the Cardinals are playing in that wild card round. But someone like Steven Vogt, not a Hall of Famer, insanely likable player, played his final game of his career. He's you know, he's played about a decade, had some highs, had some lows, got a walk-off hit in the postseason when he played for Oakland, bounced around from team to team. He's back with Oakland, and his final at-bat, he hit a home run, and he celebrated. That's it. That's how, we want, that's how he's going to leave the field. Is Stephen Vogt a Hall of Famer? Of course not. But he's someone who you couldn't help but root for, and now he's going to move on. It's a weird anticlimax of what happened with today's games. It was they they designed the final day of the season that all the teams start at the same time. So if you have a race that's going on, uh, a team you know you, you they can happen simultaneously. And if sometimes you see if a, you know, with a race going on, if someone sees a game's already been clinched, yeah, you probably would rest some of your players or maybe not start your best pitcher. Well, as it turns out, everything was decided before. And the standings, if you looked at them, would make you think today was a day about great thrills. The Brewers finished the season one game out of a wildcard spot. The Mets and the Atlanta Braves finished the season at dead even. But everything was already taken care of. Now imagine, just imagine, if the Mets had won one more game, if the Brewers had won one more game, and if Aaron Judge had hit one fewer homer, what today would have been? You would have had the Brewers and the Phillies locked horns and they'd be tied going into today. You'd have the Braves and the Mets locked horns, and they'd be tied going into today. And for the Brewers and the Phillies, it would be a chance. One goes to the playoffs, one doesn't. For the Mets and Braves, it's one gets to skip the first round, one doesn't. And then you're wondering if Aaron Judge is going to hit his 60-second home run. I, for one, am glad he hit his 60-second home run. He's even, you know, I'm not a Yankee fan, obviously, but he's an insanely likable player, and he's the type of person that baseball should be marketing their teams around, marketing their sport around. There you go. 
I'm glad he got, you know, it would have been kind of weird if he finished the season 61 and then Roger Maris would still hold the record or be tied with the record of the American League. I mentioned the other day, Roger Maris Jr. keeps yapping and yapping about legitimate home run record. I give Roger Maris Jr. a pass. It's about his dad. But the the drama today was virtually non-existent. An afternoon on Wednesday, a lot of the stadiums half full. No game really had anything on the line. And yet there's something about that that I found kind of rewarding. It doesn't always end with a spectacular finish. Sometimes it does kind of fade out. It's one of the things I love about Bull Durham, which is my all-time favorite baseball movie. The final game is a rainout. There is no championship game. There is no great winning moment. It's just the season ends, and it goes away. Sometimes that happens with our friendships. Now, of course, it will come back. It's kind of like Frosty the Snowman in that way. But we did have some amazing moments, obviously, this year. I mean, think about it. We had a 700th home run hit by one player. We had a 62nd home run hit by yet another. Uh, We had uh, a 3,000 hit hit by uh, Miguel Cabrera. The Mets had the second no-hitter in their team history. And you had uh, the Reds throw a no-hitter and lose because they couldn't score a run. Those are some weird things happened this year. You know, some people are going to talk about the Mets collapse. But the fact of the matter is they played wonderfully down the stretch, save for the sweep by the Cubs. It just turned into that game where the, the Mets were doing three or four in a row, as with the Braves. You point People point out that the Braves had a losing record after the first couple of months, and then they played, like, what, 800 ball or some ridiculous number like that after that. Well, from the beginning of June on, the Mets played at a clip that over 162 games would have netted them 99 wins. So it's not like the Mets had a horrific collapse. It's kind of like what happened to the Giants in 1993. The Giants played winning baseball down the stretch, just like the Mets played winning baseball down the stretch this year. It's just the Braves were playing out of their mind. Anytime a team gets to 100 wins, I honestly can't say there's even remotely a collapse that's going on there. It's just the Braves played like they remember they were the World Series champs. And with the playoffs right around the corner, suddenly, and we're going to talk more specifically about the playoffs in upcoming episodes, but with the playoffs right around the corner, suddenly the most important player in the postseason has become you Darvish because with the Mets playing in that wild card round, they still can hand the ball to Max Scherzer and, and uh, Jacob DeGrom and Chris Bassett. But if you Darvish could match up with Scherzer and you Darvish has been brilliant down the stretch, doesn't have to be better than Scherzer for a whole year, just for one day. Then you look up and the Mets could find themselves, you know, facing elimination in the second game of the postseason in a year where they had an image of going to the World Series dancing in their head. And look at they still could go to the World Series. It's just a much bigger gap they have, and it's not the sure bet that it was. Just a few weeks ago. And if you're going to make any bets, go to Bet Online. It's your number one source 
for football betting info this season. Find all the latest player developments, team matchups, news, podcasts, and in-depth articles and analysis on every game that you can find. As always, Bet Online remains your continued source for betting for all your sports, MMA. You could do the NBA when that comes around. You could do what other ones you could do. You can do uh, Major League Baseball. They're all there. And here, oh, there's the graphic. I hit the wrong button for the graphic. Forgive me, everybody. The fast way to check in all your favorite games, sports, and events. Boxing, golf is there. And BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports wagering with live betting and up-to-the-minute scores for every sport. Head to BetOnline.net or use your mobile device to learn more. BetOnline is where the game starts. Now, look at, I don't know how many of you, oh, by the way, it uh, looks like someone's in the chat. Who's in the chat? Hey, Jace Peer, how you doing? Thanks for listening in. Um, I don't know if Jace Peer knows this, and anyone follows me at Sully Baseball on Twitter, there's my lower third right there. During the regular season, I do two metrics that are my own creation. Uh, the first is called Who Owned Baseball? And the purpose of Who Owned Baseball was originally, uh, it was kind of a parody of Sabermetrics. It was me, uh, it was a play on war and wob and everything. I, who Owned Baseball? And it's what I did was this. I basically take who had the best day as an American League hitter and a National League hitter and as a National League pitcher and an American League pitcher and who had the best day on a team that won. They get one full wob, which is who owned baseball. And then on a team that lost, they get half a wob. The reason I did that was the first year I did, I just had who owned baseball. And there was some, and I always seemed to leaning towards players on teams that won. And so I said, well, that's, that, that kind of penalizes someone who has a great game for someone who lost. So I said, you'll get half a wob if you had the best game and you on a team that lost. I've now been doing this for 10 years, okay? And I have found that there is a weird correlation between the players who have the highest wob, who owns baseball, and who the best players are. Now, it's not 100% correlated, but if you'll see when I go through the the top finishers of who owned baseball, because the tally is now over, you get to see that, you know what, there's some, uh, there's some connection there. The players who had the best individual games throughout the year tend to be the best players. Okay, let's go to the National League hitters. Let's look at the top ones. The top National League hitter who had the highest WOB total was Pete Alonzo of the Mets. Now, one reason this comes here, at, with 10 and a half, this means there's a lot of games that he dominated and also a lot of games where he had a terrific game when the Mets happened to lose. His 10 and a half kind of was much bigger than I thought it was going to be over the person who I think is the MVP, who's in second place, which is Paul Goldschmidt at seven. So he's three and a half wob behind Pete Alonzo. Both Manny Machado and Kyle Schwarber finished the season with six WAB, tied for third place. Machado had a fantastic overall season with a Padres team that did not have the supporting cast for the first two-thirds of the season that he probably would have liked. Kyle Schwarber just seemed to hit home runs at will. And there was a bunch of those games where he hit two home runs in a day, even in a losing cause, that helped build up his WAB total. 
By the way, Nolan Arenado and CJ Cron follow him. So, but their top three finishers are Alonzo with ten and a half, Paul Goldschmidt with seven, and tied for third, Machado and Schwarber. Now, Goldschmidt is the person who I would vote for to be MVP in the National League. He finished second in WAB. Now, for American League hitters, ah, the debate: who's the MVP? I'll get to that in a second. But for American League hitters, it was again. Not that close. Aaron Judge finished with 11. Surprise! At second place was Jose Ramirez with seven. And tied for third was Jordan Alvarez with six and a half. And Mike Trout with six and a half. Which, you know, makes sense as he got his 350th homer. And he had huge home run totals for a player who missed, what, 40 or 50 games? So your top three finishers there, again, you have a tie for third place with Alvarez and Trout. Uh, Jose Ramirez, seven, and Aaron Judge with 11 leading the way. Some other high ones include Alex Bregman with five and a half, and a bunch were tied with five who owned baseball as hitters. Randy Rosarena, Bo Bichette, Rafael Devers, Ty France, Teoscar Hernandez, Ryan Mountcastle, Julio Rodriguez, Anthony Santander, and, oh yeah, Shohei Otani with five. We'll get back to him. Maybe take a look at the uh, National League pitcher who had the highest WAB total. And look at, I believe Sandy Alcantara of the Marlins should win the Cy Young Award. And in terms of who owned baseball, he doubled the next closest score. Sandy Alcantara had a 15, 15 score for who owned baseball. Games where he dominated and a bunch of uh, half-pointers when he pitched well in a losing cause. In his last game against Milwaukee, he got a half wob. He threw a complete game. Just so happened the Brewers didn't uh, hit for him. The person who won that particular game was Corbin Burns, who was tied in a one to in a was a four-way tie for second place with eight and a half Corbin Burns, Hugh Darvish, Aaron Nola, and Carlos Rodon all had eight and a half. Uh, Zach Galen of the Diamondbacks had seven and a half. Uh, Scherzer had seven. And uh, further down the line is DeGrom with three. The reason why theirs are so small is, remember, they both missed gigantic chunks of the season. Now, this one was the most interesting matchup in terms of who owned baseball, was the American League pitchers. Now, as it, this actually went down to the wire. Tied for third place was Dylan Cease with nine and a half and Shohei Otani with nine and a half. That's just nine and a half as a pitcher. He's, he had a five uh, wob total as a hitter and nine and a half as a pitcher. Um, then you saw in second place was Justin Verlander with 10. And the leader was Alec Manoa of Toronto with 10 and a half. So he beat Justin Verlander by half a wob. One game where he pitched well in a losing cause was the difference between them. So right there, and by the way, I also keep it in track because those are American League and National League. Um, there are two players who got a, uh, a wob total in both the American League and the National League. Jordan Montgomery. Got a few with the Yankees and a few with the Cardinals. And Luis Castillo 
both with the Reds and the Mariners. So there are your, those are your leaders. Those are the winners of who own baseball. Alec Manoa, yep. Uh, and then you have Al- uh, Sandy Alcantara, yep. Uh, Aaron Judge, yep. And uh, uh, Pete Alonso, yep. Hold the presses. The player who had the highest WAB total altogether in the American League was Shohei Otani. When you combine his uh, when you combine his pitching and his hitting, he had a higher WAB total than Aaron Judge. Of course, the player with the highest WAB total altogether was Alcantara for the Marlins. So maybe he deserves some MVP candidacy. I don't know. But even in my silly little stat, they couldn't. We still can't find a definitive answer of Judge versus Otani, because Judge is, is the won the total for hitter uh, and Manoa for pitcher, but Otani is his own special category for all together combining hitting and pitching, and maybe that's just what he is. He's his own special category. So in the final tally, five people own baseball in 2022. Pete Alonso, Sandy Alcantara, Aaron Judge, Alec Manoa, and Shohei Otani. The other stat that I kind of sort of created was uh, the summer score. And that's for a different philosophical question. That's a different, easy for you to say, philosophical question because it talks about the fun that a team gives a fan base for the summer. And here is the origin of that. I wanted to take into account the number of days a team was in first place or at least in a uh, postseason spot. That I try to think about what the uh, baseball team's purpose is to entertain a fan base in the summertime. And I'm imagining a fan waking up in the summer and looking at the standings and seeing, hey, my team's in position to go to the playoff right now. I'm going to have a fun summer with my team. Now, I don't start the summer score until Memorial Day, the day after Memorial Day, because the first couple of months, it's too early to tell. One good week in April can shoot you to first place, and one bad week will have you tumble to last place. It's too early. If you start bragging about your team in first place and it's April, people say, come on, it's early. Knock it off. As well, they should. But starting with Memorial Day, that's the first checkpoint. About a third of the season has gone by. I say, okay, it's summertime now. Let's see how we do. Let's see how we do. Now, how the summer score works is between Memorial Day and the end of June, every day your team is in position to make the playoffs, you get one point. For the month of July, every day, you get two points because you're further along. It's right on the all-star break. Oh, we look at this. We're at the halfway mark, and we're still in position for a playoff. So that's pretty good. That's pretty good. By the time you get to August, each day you're in a playoff spot is worth three points because you start thinking, hey, we're coming down the stretch, and we're still there. This, this is a summer that's going to extend into fall. Between the beginning of September and the end of the season, every day you're in a position, you get four points. 
because you're like, okay, we're there. Just hang tight. And in September, if you pull within a game, you get one point because if you wake up in September, you're only one game out, you start thinking this may be our year. So as it turned out, and I never really know the answer to this going into it, as it turns out, a perfect summer score with all those points starting Memorial Day, a perfect summer score would be 300. And here are the teams that achieved that. These are the teams that, in using this metric, gave their fans a perfect season where every single day when they woke up from May 31st, the day after Memorial Day, up until October 6th, every day they looked at the standings and saw their team was in position to go to the postseason. The Houston Astros, the New York Yankees, the Toronto Blue Jays, who, by the way, fired their manager midway through, the Los Angeles Dodgers, the San Diego Padres, and the Mets. That's right, Met fans. You had a perfect summer. May not have felt that way, but that was the case. Now, some other teams, like Tampa Bay, had a very high. They were only five shy of a perfect summer. But there was a couple of days in June where they fell out of the wild card race for just a day here or there. Also, they fell out on the 13th day of August. The Seattle Mariners didn't get into a playoff spot until July. But save for a two-game span in July, they remained in a playoff spot right to the end of the season and finished with a 279 summer score. The Guardians, who were in a playoff position in June and didn't really get back until uh, until August. They had an entire month where they weren't in position to be a playoff team and then held true the rest of the way, finished with a 212 uh, summer score. The highest American League summer score for a team that didn't make the postseason was the Minnesota Twins. Remember, the Twins were in first place from May 31st until August 10th, and then they fell out. They climbed back to first place on September 5th and then collapsed. They actually finished with a losing record. They finished tied with the Red Sox. Oh, by the way, yeah, the Red Sox didn't have a great year, but they had a summer score of 53 because they were a playoff team in early June and mid-June, right until mid-July, right until they round the All-Star break. The Red Sox were a playoff team. The Angels, who had a disastrous season, were a playoff team from May 31st until June 5th. And then everything fell apart. Oddly, the Orioles had a summer score of six because two days they were tied for a wildcard spot in August. Take a look at the National League. Man, the Mets and the Padres may not feel like they had perfect summers, but in terms of this metric, they did. The Cardinals nearly had a perfect summer. There was a handful of days in June and a couple of days in July where they fell out of the playoff spot. But from August 5th on, they were there, and they finished with 310. The Braves didn't get into the playoffs until uh, June 11th was when they slipped into a wildcard spot, and they finished with a score of 305. The Phillies finished with a score of 269 which, by the way, is the lowest of the National League scores to get in. 
Uh, they didn't get to become a playoff team until July. They kind of bounced around. They fell out a couple of days, too. But they stayed in it from July 20, 29th all the way to the end. The highest summer score for a National League team to not make it was the Brewers, who wound up with a summer score of 107. Remember, the Brewers were the division leader at the trade deadline, and then they fell out. By the way, the San Francisco Giants had a summer score of 25 because they were a playoff team from Memorial Day until late June. Then they fell apart. So there you go. It's a weird metric, I believe, but it's also one that takes into account, hey, the whole point of this is waking up and seeing your team's a good playoff team. This could be their year. And while Met fans may look up and feel like this season was partially a disaster, at least by my metric, it was perfect. Not one day did a Met fan wake up, look at the newspaper, and not see their team in a position of the playoffs from Memorial Day on. Sounds pretty good to me. So now we take a look. and We take a look at the postseason. We take a look at who's there. And this could be the year for the Astros when they're 106 wins. The Yankees, who righted their ship after they stumbled a little bit and finished with 99 wins. Well, wasn't it cool that Aaron Judge, number 99, hit his 62nd home run on the uh, next to last day of the season? And the Yankees' record at that point was 99 and 62. 99, Aaron Judge, 62, his home run total. I'm just saying. Uh, Cleveland, of course, put on the aft thrusters, had a fantastic September, won the division handily, and they're a 92-win team. That's legit. That's the same number as Toronto has, and that's uh, two ahead of Seattle and a good six ahead of Tampa Bay. And then it could be the year with the Dodgers, with their best statistical team ever, just go ahead and plows their way to a championship. The Braves want to be the first National League team to win back-to-back titles since the Big Red Machine. The Cardinals want to win with the old band back together. The Mets know that a World Series championship would erase all bad memories. And the Padres and the Phillies, well, they want to surprise people. But for Brewers fans, and Giants fans, and Diamondback fans, and Cub fans, Marlin fans, Rockies fans, Reds fans, Pirate fans, Nationals fans, Orioles fans, White Sox fans, Red Sox fans, Twins fans, Angels fans, Rangers fans, Tigers fans, Royals fans, A's fans. It's over. For those fan bases, they have to wait to see their friends again. And I'm sure those fan bases will get interested in the World Series when it comes around. Or maybe they just turn it off, say, hey, my team's not in it. I'll see you in spring training. And with that, we lose our friend until the winter is over for those fan bases. Try to watch some of the games, but I get it. I get it. Sometimes you just want to move on and find a new friend or catch up. I always find myself catching up on shows and podcasts and books and everything else the day after my team gets eliminated. It's our friend that we had for the summer. The summer score keeps track of those days where you wake up and you see your friends doing well. In some ways, that's the whole point of it. But in other ways, the point is you have your companion. Whether your team stunk, was mediocre, or may go on to win it all. If you follow a baseball team, you have a friend who's there every day. 
just like I try to be there every day with this podcast. So go to Locked On MLB Pods on both Twitter and on Instagram. I'm your pal Sully. I'm at Sully Baseball on Twitter, Sully Baseball Podcast on Instagram. Going through my own personal metrics to break down the quality of the players and saying goodbye to the regular season. Our daily friend, this has been Locked On MLB for the sixth day of October 2022. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.